It was the early 90s and Sophie Bolt was about to meet Helen John for the first time. Helen John, who was one of the founding women of Greenham Common, um, and she'd been a midwife in Cardiff, and she said that um, they, they, they'd closed down yet another ward, I think, or um, they, they couldn't afford an, an incubator. Um, and she was saying, you know, how come we can't afford incubators, but we can afford, you know, we can afford cruise missiles, you know, what's going on here? And um, so she said, you know, so she just, they decided that they were going to march to Greenham Common, and um, and she said, and we got there, and um, and we decided, I oh, know, let's chain ourselves to the fence. So they just, so just decided to chain ourselves to the fence. And um, and she said that the the kind of the general of the of the um, of the base of the American base kind of came out, and he sort of said, oh, you know, you should be really careful, um, you know, being chained to the fence like that because we're going to be, you know, the guys in there are going to be having like a, you know, a party tonight. There's going to be lots of alcohol. You know, you better be careful like this. And she said, um, oh, brilliant. That will look great in the newspapers, won't it? British women raped. And I was just, oh, my God. Um, that's what, you know, that's what she was like. But this isn't a podcast about Helen. If you want to discover her story, there are plenty of resources out there, and I'd encourage you to look them up. Today, I'm bringing you Sophie's story. Welcome to Rebel Women, a podcast about history's troublemakers. I'm Esther Freeman. This is the third and final part of our series about the Green and Common Women's Peace Camp. For this episode, we're focusing on someone who wasn't even there, yet was irrevocably touched by it. A woman who 100% captures the spirit of the movement, taking the fight to a new generation. Sophie was born in 1968 in Orpington on the southeast edge of Greater London. She grew up with a mother who she describes as flamboyant. However, the area itself was pretty conservative, both with a small and big C. Since the constituency formed in 1945, it has been held by the Tories in every general election except the 1962 by-election and the 1964 general election, when it temporarily went to the Liberals. It was won back by the Conservatives in 1970. From the late 70s onwards, there was a strong showing from the National Front, followed by the BNP in the 80s, and UKIP from the late 90s onwards. I, did, I didn't realise that as a child, you know, that it was politically conservative, but I just found um, there was something a bit sort of oppressive about it. And certainly as I got older, um, it was one of those places where it just felt like the highlight of people's weeks was sort of the Sunday kind of cleaning the car. There was like no, there was nobody, there was no sort of um, street life or anything like that. The staid local atmosphere did not crush Sophie's rebellious spirit, nor her sense of justice, which began at an early age. When I was primary school, um, I came home from school complaining really bitterly about how we hadn't been allowed to play out in the, at um, playtime because of all the snow. And I said that this was really bad and that we should have been able to play out. And so my mum said, well, why don't you, why don't you get a petition going, you know? And, um, so that's what I did, and I got into really serious trouble <laughs> um, about it. I got hauled into the headmaster's office, and like he really kind of told me off about it. 
Um, so yeah, it was quite a, it was quite a frightening experience, really. And also, what was interesting about it was seeing the reaction of some children's parents. I remember sort of being in the playground with my petition, saying, "Oh, you know, does anybody want to sign my petition?" And I remember really vividly seeing these women pull their children away from me and say, "Don't sign the petition." And um, so that was it. Was all. Yeah, that was all, it was quite sort of disturbing and, and unexpected because the way my mum had kind of presented it, it was something sort of quite exciting, sort of an empowering and, you know, very positive thing. And yet, um, yeah, the sort of the experience of it was, was um, yeah, was, was sort of quite stressful for me, really. Yeah, so that was kind of like my first, <laughs> yeah, my first sort of uh, bit of political activism, maybe, yeah, maybe it was, yeah. What began as a battle for playtimes grew into a much wider battle for her education. So my school was, um, it was on sort of prime, um, kind of prime land. So the council decided to sell it off. And um, so what they did was children just, um, they stopped sort of um, allowing first years in. So the school just became like a bit of a morgue and teachers left so teachers that you'd you know built this bond up with they just like left and and you couldn't help but take it personally you know I was a bit like why are they why are they kind of leaving us they obviously don't think we're that good so it's kind of all of that and then having um like um supply teachers who didn't know you and treated you really disrespectfully that was quite shocking to me anyway I think that had a big impact on why I then didn't go and do you know, A-levels and stuff, I went off and worked. So, but I kind of kind of always had that um, sense that there was something sort of missing and that um, I felt quite, I felt quite defensive actually about not, not having, you know, A-levels and things like that. I remember sort of being at parties and feeling like a bit like, oh, there must be something wrong with me. Anyway, so, um, so I kind of went, I went sort of evening classes and that's how I kind of, um, went back into education um, and then eventually decided that I wanted to yeah I could do it I was going to go to university so it was a big you know it was a big thing going there but um, it's when you still got a maintenance grant and um, it was about I would have I worked out there would have been in about six grand of debt which I felt that I could just about justify that for me as a mature student going to university I was like okay I think I can am I worth it and I felt like yes it is I can justify it and then you know I got to university and I met like really amazing people I just really was so exciting all the things I kind of wanted it to be it was and so when you got a Labour government which was really fantastic but unfortunately one of the first things it did was introduce tuition fees and get rid of maintenance grant and that for me was the catalyst really because I felt like you know all those people who won't be able to have the experience that I'm having because they can't afford to go to university you know I imagine those people having that same um sort of conversation in their own heads can I justify this and saying no I can't you know at university she met a new and different kind of friend ones with big ideas about the world around them they ate together in the communal kitchens in their halls of residence, challenging theories about capitalism and discussing inequalities. Eventually, Sophie and her new friends decided to put the words into actions. 
and then we kind of decided that we were going to stand for election for the student union so a group of us kind of got together and we stood on a kind of political platform that was for free education we wanted to improve the democracy of the student union we wanted to make it more inclusive because we felt like it was just sort of um it was very male dominated the bar and it was um not it was a bit intimidating we didn't really like anyway it was just not, not at all diverse when you looked at the student membership it just didn't reflect it so anyway that was kind of our ticket that we went on and amazingly most of us got elected and it was also quite terrifying as well because <laughs> then we had to kind of deliver on on um, what we said you know what what we'd sort of set out to do getting elected was only the first step on sophie's political journey by getting elected to the student union that then put me in contact with lots of other elected officers all around the country and that was when I sort of had another kind of political education which was I came into contact with women's officers you know there were there were student unions that had like full-time women's officers it was incredible and then I was then I kind of you know I suppose learned a lot about the structures and the institutions that we live in and how they're organised in a particular way that just, you know, that are discriminatory against us as women. And um, I went through so many different sort of stages when I kind of come into terms with that, because to begin with, I kind of grieved for myself because I'd worked as a secretary. That was like my first job, pretty much my first job. And I, at the time, I thought that I was being treated in this sort of disrespectful way you know this way where I would always come and come away from the sort of the interactions that I had had with these men feeling inadequate and embarrassed and awkward all that kind of stuff and I, at the time though I couldn't kind of really get my head around it and <laughs> and so then when I then became kind of like I suppose aware of all the sex that you know the sexism that I'd basically been been experiencing and at the time I tried to sort of explain it away as if it must be something to do with me you know I must just sort of be communicating with these men in a particular way that they just you know um, feel that they have to embarrass me or well anyway whatever it was or you know put me down and then of course I kind of realized this is you know this is across the board and also you know working in a very sort of what's seen as a kind of women-only area of work, um, which is in itself sort of denigrated. That's that's what was going on. So to kind of realise that, like, I was, yeah, I was sort of being sort of sexually harassed, you know, I was sort of, you know, sort of experiencing all this sort of sexual discrimination in, in my workplace. I felt so, I felt so sorry for myself. I felt so, yeah, like, really, I really kind of grieved myself. And also, you know, other experiences in terms of, you know, me as a as a sort of a young woman kind of exploring her sexuality and all that sort of stuff. You know, the amount of times when, as a young woman, you know, trying to negotiate your, your physical space is absolutely fraught. So there was kind of a lot of, you know, thinking about, you know, lots of experiences as well. So I kind of grieved and I was really angry. I remember kind of walking around and looking at um, all the advertising and going, oh my God, this is just so sexist. It's just so sexist. (laughs) This is absolutely terrible. Um, So just being furious, just being really furious sort of all the time. 
and then eventually kind of you can't be well I can't, I can't be that angry you know all the time it's just not possible and then kind of um going okay well you know I've got to be organized Sophie realized her fight against tuition fees was linked to economic oppression was linked to gender was linked to race was linked to global inequalities so I sort of felt like the what come out of you know this one sort of campaign against you know this attack on students it felt like it was I realized it was part of a much sort of wider struggle and so to me I was like well I can't just be fighting against tuition fees you know I've got to be fighting racism you know I've got to be fighting against war you know I've got <laughs> I've got to fight all these things that's kind of how I felt but it didn't feel like overwhelming and oh my god you know I can't do this it was that was actually in some respects empowering because I felt like I started to understand how all of these things were totally connected and how there were people on the other side of the world who I had a bond with you know we were all fighting for the same cause so that was really empowering for me yeah the widening of her political horizons led her to work with students from Northern Ireland and I was really lucky to work with um, students in the north of Ireland around basically sort of raising awareness about um, the Good Friday Agreement and about the peace process in the north of Ireland. And um, it was just, as I say, it was just a massive privilege because the issue, well, the issue, the situation um, is so complex and I think it's so it's presented in such a biased way in Britain as if it's just these two, just these two sort of, you know, warring factions that, you know, they just, because of religion, they just can't sort it out. And so us British people, we've got to go in there and sort it out for them. And that's kind of how I feel it was always kind of presented. And then when you actually look at it, like the British government very clearly takes one side, which is the side of unionism, United Kingdom, all that stuff. So, you know, what, what we're sort of fed here is just a lot of time, partial and, and lies. And so sort of um, going over to Belfast and places like that to sort of see what was really going on was just shocking, but also, you know, really opened my eyes. You know, I, un- I understood what was going on in, in, a, in a lot better, much better way and was able to work with lots of really amazing people and we organised sort of forums around around the, um, the country to bring people together around why there needs to be a peace process in the north of Ireland and why politics is absolutely crucial to getting any kind of solution. You know, you've got to get people sitting around and talking about how you're going to move forward if you're going to end violence. That was, so that was really clear to me. Um, and how brave and tenacious and patient these people were just really really incredible her commitment to peace embedded she left university and got a job with cnd and this is where helen john walked into her life along with many other veterans of the green and peace camp all these women who'd come through green and common um who were now like in their sort of 60s and 70s some of them not all of them obviously um yeah some of them who were kind of younger than me actually um just took no shit at all they had none of this thing where like they were worried about how people would take what they were going to say um didn't care they just didn't care like you know 
people's opinion of them and it was just incredibly refreshing for me. That's really where I kind of I got involved in women's peace camps. So I learned about all the sort of the history and the culture behind those those camps and why, you know, why they came about. Um, this whole thing around sort of non-violent direct action and how important that was and the whole ideology behind it. As Sophie was deepening her political education, global tensions once again grew. Four years before the historic march against the Iraq war, Prime Minister Tony Blair played a key role in another act of international aggression. He argued that Yugoslavia was, quote, set on a Hitler-style genocide equivalent to the extermination of the Jews in World War II against the ethnic Albanian population in the province of Kosovo, end quote. And so on the 12th of April 1999, NATO set objectives for the Kosovo conflict, which included a large-scale air campaign to destroy Yugoslavian military infrastructure. While this led to the capitulation of President Milosevic, it came with a huge loss of civilian life. According to Human Rights Watch, between 489 and 528 civilians were killed by NATO airstrikes, although Serbian sources claim the figure was higher. This led to international human rights groups, including Amnesty International, claiming that NATO committed war crimes. Against this background of military aggression, Sophie was travelling to remote parts of Britain with the Green and Common veterans. You know, you go to like these really beautiful um, remote parts of Britain, like in Yorkshire, and are really, really beautiful, and they've got these terrible kind of like US sort of military spy bases and things like that. Um, but yeah, we did lots of actions at those, which was, you know, obviously all about kind of raising awareness about these places because they, you know, they're not on maps or anything like that. They're all sort of totally sort of secretive, um, and sort of, you know, trying to sort of raise awareness about how these bases in Britain are actually all part of sort of U.S. military machine. You know, they have like these radars that would actually be part of a, this US missile defence system, as it was called. And that was all about assisting the US to be able to sort of take out um, missiles that were being targeted at it. Um, so, yeah, so that's that was Britain's kind of... That is still is what am I talking about. It's not in the past. It still is Britain's role um, in kind of, you know, keeping America as like the preeminent nuclear armed country you would get there the night before or you would get there like like three in the morning or something mad I mean I didn't do I didn't do lock-ons which is where you lock yourself to gates and things like that but you know I met loads of people who did do that sort of stuff and and it was lit and you would sort of try and stop the 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 trucks or you know whatever it was you basically sort of you're stopping the work of the base um that's what um, we we tended to do, um, but it was also about raising awareness. So people passing, you know, they might not know what that what that base was for. And we would it was all very kind of basic as well because if you were you were camping, so you'd you, you'd literally it, you know you'd be like setting up camp, and we used to do uh, an action that would be um, it was on the anniversary of like this massive Greenham Common. 
Embrace the Bass, which is, it was in December, I can't remember the date of it. So we would um, have these anniversary events. So we've do, we did an anniversary event in Menwith Hill, which is in sort of very close to sort of Leeds, um, which is where this sort of, yeah, spy base is. And so by about four o'clock, it's pitch black. <laughs> so you're sort of in the middle of nowhere in the sort of the pitch black. So we, you know, we'd all sort of just sit around the campfire and, <laughs> and, um, and share stories and stuff like that. Um, and then, you know, do your action sort of really early in the morning. Then in 2015, something happened that would change the course of Sophie's activism. It was just so amazing when Jeremy Corbyn got onto the ballot for Labour leadership. And um, that was just one of the most exciting things to see um, him becoming leader. And so I just totally turned around that. And all the things, you know, that I feel so strongly about, Jeremy Corbyn was always there. Like, you know, when we were sort of campaigning against um, tuition fees and abolition of the grant, Jeremy Corbyn was always there on all of, all of all of our protests supporting you know coming to our public meetings and all that he has um a vision which I totally you know I totally support you know lots of people were so upset you know and so disappointed by the fact that it was like a labor government that was producing all these really regressive um policies which were you know basically stopping people from being able to go into higher education and then of course you know Iraq you know, absolutely disastrous, appalling things that happened. You know, Jeremy Corbyn was a leader of the Labour Party and was able to apologise, you know, in Parliament on behalf of the Labour government for, for the Iraq war, you know, that was sort of so necessary. So, um, yeah, it feels like a kind of vindication, really, of, of, like, all that campaigning. So Sophie joined the Labour Party and became active in Walthamstow, East London, where she now lived. In fact, my first branch meeting was where it was just at the, it was just um, when the coup had happened, when um, Owen Smith, it was just before Owen Smith kind of came forward to challenge Jeremy. And, um, and I, with a group of others, we put in a motion to say, you know, we have, conf- we have confidence in, in Jeremy. And so that was my first branch meeting. And I was, I was sort of um, proposing this motion and... Um, and it was absolutely packed out. It was in um, Harmony Hall, there were probably about 150 people and the branch meetings, you know, never normally that big. So it was absolutely massive. And it was, um, so it was, it, was, it was also, it was quite nerve wracking, um, but it was also like really exciting. And it was, I felt so proud to be able to sort of be, you know, proposing that motion that, and we won it. <laughs> Sophie moved up through the rank and file membership to become chair of her local branch in 2018. There she once again found powerful women driving through change. Overwhelmingly, it's um, women who are, who are kind of playing leadership roles in, in my branch. Um, but also, I think, across the party, I think because austerity, you know, is overwhelmingly kind of hit women, um, that it's women who, are, who have the least to lose and the most to gain from a Labour government and so are, like, working flat out to try and make that happen. So, yeah, so there are lots of, like, really inspirational women. Like, um, we we created um, posts for a black and ethnic minority officer. So we created these new posts because we wanted to um, make the branch, you know, 
properly sort of like um, reflect the diversity of the of our constituency. In November 2019, Boris Johnson called a general election. After seeing Labour come so close to victory in 2017, Sophie swung into action. She took on the role of campaign organiser in the constituency of City in Westminster, where the Labour candidate was running against defector Chuka Umuna. In the end, the Conservatives held the seat, but Sophie was not finished. She went to work on the London 2021 elections, which saw Sadiq Khan hold on to his position as mayor and Labour retain control of the London Assembly. Sophie failed to be re-elected as chair of her local branch, Corbyn resigned, and the Labour right took a firm hold of the party once more. So she turned her attention back to CND, becoming their vice chair. Over the past three episodes, we have explored the lives of three women, all touched by the Green and Common peace camp. Ellen, who dedicated a big chunk of her life to actually being on the camp, but then went in a different direction. Sheila, who only went once, but the experience shaped the next few decades of her life. And Sophie, who wasn't there at all, but was inspired by the women who were. I used to be a little sceptical about Greenham and what it achieved. It certainly did not have an immediate effect. It took 11 years after the camp was first established for the US Air Force to leave. And as Sophie says, US military influence is still heavy in Britain today. But maybe we should not be measuring a campaign in terms of how long it took to achieve its goal. Let's ask instead, what would have happened if it had not been there at all? If the Green and Common Peace Camp had not existed, it would have greatly reduced the pressure on government, perhaps leading to even more US weapons being stored on British soil. The issue would not have received media attention, which despite often being negative, took the conversation into village stores and pubs across the country. It would not have brought women together, forged friendships and built further campaigns. It would not have inspired women like Sheila, who did not give up even when it felt like David versus Goliath and it would not have paved way for the next generation of women fighting for peace and justice. Join us next time as we explore how women today are continuing the fight for their rights in an increasingly divided society. This is Rebel Women. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate and review. Better still, tell your friends about it. If you want to get in touch, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. For further stories about East London women, visit our website, eastlondonwomen.org.uk. Rebel Women is part of the Women Activists of East London Project, which has been developed by Share UK, a non-profit community group based in London. Special thanks to the William Morris Big Local for funding today's episode.